You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and it's another beautiful day here in Oregon, and you're listening to the Bose Nose Show, and I am your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. I survived the airline trip uh, from Washington, D.C., back here to the uh, lovely uh, environs of Elmira. And I tell you, it's just a great day outside. I hope everybody had a chance maybe to go for a walk at lunch or something like that. You don't get these kind of days in March too often because tomorrow the rain comes back. Um, But it was a great day here uh, weather-wise, but, you know, maybe not such a great day up in Salem uh, for some people. Um, We'll talk about that later in the show. Mostly I want to spend some time, and I'm doing this show at a special time tonight because I wanted to report back what went on in Washington, D.C. while I was there, seeing I've been gone uh, for a while. And uh, this past weekend and the last few days, uh, I've been attending the National Association of Counties Annual Legislative Conference, um, which takes place in Washington, D.C. every year, right in the first week of March. Um, And it's where... um, state associations and even individual commissioners can bring forward various resolutions and try and get them approved uh, by the legislative committees um, that uh, formed in in NACO. And I personally sit as a voting member of the Public Safety uh, Committee, uh, but uh, I brought a resolution with me, which is one of the reasons why I even attended this year. I didn't attend last year. Um, which was actually voted on by the Health Policy Committee because it had to do with federally qualified health clinics. But that was one of the reasons why I went to the conference. But it's always a great conference because they have a lot of, um, they got breakout sessions and, you know, there's the committee sessions where we talk about various things. Uh, and they always um, have some speakers during the general sessions, um, which usually happen um Monday and Tuesday mornings, uh, the actual general business sessions for um, NACO. And uh, Monday, we were fortunate to hear from uh, Dr. Ben Carson, who's the uh, head of uh, HUD, you know, Housing and Urban Development. And uh, he's, he's always a pretty good speaker and just, you know, he has this kind of laid back sort of style and and you just kind of feel like um, he's just a really nice guy, you know, uh, as he's talking. And uh, he he talked a little bit, you know, about um, you know the, the housing crisis that's happening, particularly on on the on the coastlines, uh, 
interesting enough, mostly in blue areas. Uh, but the, the the crisis and the homeless crisis that's you know kind of starting to eke up in our in our country. And um, he talked about how HUD is specifically trying to remove some of the barriers against building some new housing, uh, low-income housing, all that stuff. Because it seems like every program that kind of helps assist local governments in do it, doing some of this stuff has so much red tape attached to it <laughs> that it's really difficult to build stuff at a reasonable cost. Um, and he's he's working really hard with his agency to kind of peel back some of that red tape uh, and make some programs easier and remove as many barriers as possible to get um, to the money the federal government provides to local governments to try and provide some of these housing, particularly uh, the permanent supported housing that's helpful with the homeless situation. The other thing he talked about a little bit was fair housing and um, continuing to work on um, preventing discrimination in housing and making sure that's not the cause uh, for why some people can't get housing. Uh, good to hear that there's, you know, nothing's changed there. Uh, there's still a focus on trying to provide and enforce federal fair housing law. Uh, so he was, you know, a, a good speaker uh, on Monday. Uh, we also heard from a couple of congressmen, you know, um, about a, a bipartisan bill um, that is looking at um, ways of identifying uh, and screening early on for people that might potentially have the the characteristics of a, a mass shooter and intervening in time, um, you know, seeing those, those tipping event moments and trying to understand that. Um, and that all comes out of the, the, the Florida shooting uh, where that person had actually been in contact with so many people. It's amazing. Somehow or other, he didn't get flagged and, and, and provided some support before he uh, shot up Parkland. Um, but, you know, besides that, you know, kind of some, some lesser speakers. I mean, I heard from uh, the head of the Forest Service. I heard from uh, the, uh, um, I think it was the Deputy Director of Interior. I think I'm trying to remember what, what the exact title was, but basically the person that BLM reports to, which was, you know, important for a lot of the Western states and spoke a lot about forest management and uh, grazing and on federal lands and firefighting, a few other things. Um, you know, so hearing from a lot of administrative folks and having a chance to do a little Q&A sometimes at the end of those presentations. Um, and then uh, on Tuesday, um, the first speaker was uh, General Colin Powell, uh, former Secretary of State, uh, former Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, and he was speaking specifically about a leadership program that's been, that he helped um, NACO develop for county officials, um, whether they're elected officials all the way down into staff, line staff, um, frontline staff. Uh, and he was an entertaining speaker. Um, you know, of course, I've read one of Colin Powell's books about his uh, you know, upbringing as a Jamaican, you know, his parents were Jamaican immigrants uh, in the Bronx and all that stuff. And his, his, um, you know, kind of skyrocket 
through the uh, ranks in the army up to where he got to. But uh, this is kind of going on beyond that and trying to um, uh, help people with some of the leadership skills he learned. And not only that, um, they went to all these other leaders and got, you know, some of their lessons in leadership and put them together to, for this program. But he had, you know, like 13 rules or something that he used to put out. And, I, and I'll blow it trying to remember them. But, um, you know, one of the things he talked about that was kind of interesting and kind of hit me a little bit because I, I do this to a certain extent, but there's sometimes where I don't understand how it impacts other people. You know, he told a story about um, just doing something very small for somebody that he didn't, he kind of didn't think the guy even needed to have, you know, some him step in and do it for him, but he did it. And the person was so thankful about it and, and, and so appreciative and, and it meant so much. And it, he is basic. One of his rules is, you know, if somebody asks for you to do something for them and, and you have the ability to do it, just do it. You know, whether you think they need it or not, they, they asked you for a reason and be, and because it's something really meaningful to them. And also, you know, it's kind of one of those things that somebody asks you for help, you know, don't kind of turn away, you know, and, and go ahead and do it. You know, even if you don't think they need to help sometimes it, it, you may not understand what's going on in the background and why they're asking you for the help. Um, and it's something I consistently end up having to, you know, getting a lot of constituent requests for help. Um, I can see that, you know, sometimes I think, you know, why are you asking me for help in this? Can't you get that figured out? It's like, well, all right, don't, you know, got to set that aside because sometimes people just have reasons why they're not able to negotiate the system, you know, whether it's a, um, you know, a, something in their past trauma, you know, that, that makes it difficult for them to negotiate systems or, or whatever, or just a failure to understand some of the technical jargon that's being thrown at them. Um, just, you know, help people out when they ask you for help was one of his lessons. Uh, but yeah, he, he was pretty humorous too, he, you know, telling stories about as he liked to wander around army bases when he was a general, just to kind of stop and talk to privates and stuff like that. And that habit kind of continued as he was secretary of state he would just get up and walk around the state department. And one day he just ended up in the parking garage underneath the building. And of course the guys that are parking the cars there aren't even state department employees. They're a contractor that does the car parking or something. And they're all um, immigrants and relatively new immigrants to the country. Um, and uh, he stopped to talk to them a little bit and, uh, you know, and getting to know them and all that, and, and uh, they parked the cars there. There's really not enough space for all the cars in this garage, so they kind of parked the cars, they parked people in. And there's, you know, like the, the number three spots up against the wall, and then there's the number two spot that parks that guy, and then the number one spot that actually can get out without having to wait for one or two to get out of the way first. And he was talking to the, the guys about that, said, isn't that hard to kind of coordinate and get that all straight and everything? And then he said, so how do you decide who gets one, two, or three? <laughs> and they basically said, well, the people that pull up and roll down their window and say, hey, how's it going? How you doing today? And all that stuff, they get number one. 
So as he said, you know, anybody in your organization, no matter how lowly they are, you need to, to honor their contribution to the organization because they're just as important as you are to the success of that organization or that position shouldn't be there in the first place. So, you know, be nice to everybody. <laughs> it's kind of a lesson there where you may end up parked against the wall and getting home late from work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he was, he was pretty amusing and, and a good speaker, but, you know, it was all kind of the warm up to the, the, you know, it was announced, um, I think, Friday, you know, Thursday or Friday before the start of the NACO conference that um, President Trump had confirmed he was going to come speak. And he's the first president to address the, the National Association of Counties conference since 1996 when Bill Clinton did, 24 years. Um, and NACO's had multiple presidents address it before that. Um, every year, NACO puts out a, um, an invitation to whatever administrations in the White House to have come and speak and send representatives to come speak. And um, the White House this time sent us Ben Carson. Um, they also sent us the CDC director to talk about um, the COVID-19 um, coronavirus. So, uh, and in some of the smaller um, meetings and all that stuff, we had you know department heads and, and um, cabinet level people coming to speak to smaller groups. It was pretty impressive how much the Trump administration um, put themselves out to this group of, of uh, county commissioners, uh, parish leaders, um, and borough um, leaders, because it's counties, parishes, and boroughs. And there's 3,142 of them, I found out, all across the U.S. Um, and there were about 12 to 1,500 of us there at this conference. So um, really great that President Trump accepted the invitation personally to come speak to us. And uh, so that made it kind of difficult because that meant they were going to have to um, first screen everybody with a photo, ID, you know, a government issued photo ID and our badge that was issued for the conference just to get past the initial screening. Then we had to do the metal detector thing and all that. And they opened the, the, the doors for the meeting that started at um, 9.30 at 7.30, and people were standing in line at 5.30 for them to open the screening. <laughs> and President Trump wasn't expected to talk until 11. So it made for a very long morning uh, waiting to get in there. So uh, people were pretty excited about seeing him, uh, and he, uh, to his credit, he tried to keep his speech very uh, nonpartisan, not a campaign speech, um, and talk about some of the programs and some of the things they've implemented, some of the things they're getting ready to implement. Um, and, you know, at one point um, uh, when he said something about loving the rural counties and all that stuff, um, uh, a, a few people broke out in a four more years chant, and he actually kind of tamped it all down. And said, no, no, this isn't a campaign rally. This is, you know, this is a speech to, a, you know, a group of, of local government officials. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, he really did talk about how important local government is and how appreciative he is of this, you know, the county and, and city levels of government that are like that first line of government. 
which is great to hear because it kind of means, you know, he kind of gets federalism. Government's supposed to be on the most local level possible. Um, but, you know, of course, he had to toot his own horn a little bit and talk about how great the economy is and, and everything else. But uh, got into some, uh, you know, some of his proposals around the economy, talked a bit about vocational tech and, and how important it is to actually, you know, have our, our high schools and our schools not just have the trajectory to sending people to college for um, advanced degrees, but having training people for an actual vocation uh, and how important and needed that is because we have such a shortage of, of that, uh, those workers with our record um, low unemployment. And, uh, you know, he talked a bit about his infrastructure proposals particularly noting that rural broadband was included in his infrastructure. And, and of course, you know, a good portion, you know, a majority of the people there at the conference are from rural counties. So they're all, you know, cheered on that. Um, and then he talked a little bit about his opportunity zones. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, he talked about, you know, how some states have really grabbed a hold of that and are doing great things. And it's bringing a lot of um, uh, growth and, and, in economic activity to those areas that have set aside those opportunity zones. So he talked about, you know, there's some good governors out there that have really taken advantage of this. And he said, then some, some not so good, you know, not so good ones, as he put it, he uh, didn't really say bad governors. Uh, and he paused for a second and somebody who must be from Oregon that was not sitting close to me screamed out Kate Brown. <laughs> and, and you could hear it in, record in the the video of his of his speech that was done um you can hear that that shout of kate brown <laughs> which was kind of funny but you know oregon has only designated two opportunity zones in the entire state and, and i don't know why kate brown will not um designate more and the ones she's designated haven't been the best designations um because there there's lots of areas um you know i can think of areas on the south coast that could could use being an opportunity zone i can think of areas you know down in southwest oregon where we're, we're not cutting trees and suffer, suffering from smoke half the summer that could probably stand being an opportunity zone um but i think it's just something where governor brown and the administration aren't getting along so she's not going to help implement a, a, a a program that was initiated by the administration kind of missing an opportunity <laughs> so to say but um you know his his speech was was well well done but you want to know what brought the biggest cheer and his longest standing ovation of his speech i i, I bet no one could guess in a million years so you know he was talking a little bit about um, mental health and, and, and uh, you know, the homeless situation, housing stuff. And he said, jails are not the place people with mental health should go. And that, that was brought the biggest standing ovation from the county commissioners and everyone in the room because we get it. We all run the jails, you know. In particular, almost across the country, that's usually the county that runs the jail for felonies and even some misdemeanors. Um, and we are 
becoming the largest mental health providers in this country are county jails. And we realize we don't, that's not one, a good place to send somebody that's mentally ill because the lights are on all the time. It's loud and clangy, you know, <laughs> you don't get to see outside. Um, it's not really the best place. You know, people are making noise all night. Um, you know, it doesn't exactly de-escalate folks that are having a crisis. Um, so that, believe it or not, you know, his statement that mentally ill people should not be being put in jail got the biggest cheer uh, and standing ovation of anything he said the whole time, other than when he ended his speech and we all stood up and cheered. Um, you know, it was it was well done, kept it bipartisan, um, touched on things I think both sides of the aisle liked, um, and uh, it was kind of neat to be in the room, you know, with the President of the United States, uh, even if I was sitting maybe uh, 100 feet back in the audience. Um, still, still pretty fun. But um, my main reason for going to NACO this year, though, was to carry a resolution that I initiated and got our board to approve to take to the Association of Oregon Counties. I carried it to the Association of Oregon Counties um, through the Governance Committee to the legislative um, body of the Association of Oregon Counties, and they approved it to go on to NACO. And I carried it as the sponsor to NACO, where I stood up and explained what the resolution did and uh, answered any questions from the audience, and then they took the vote on it. Uh, actually, by the time I explained it, there were no questions from the audience, and it was passed unanimously. And then what the resolution does is it asks for a couple specific changes in federal law to clarify the intent of the act that set up our federally qualified health clinics. And it may seem like something kind of minor when I tell you about it, but it is really important because it could make the difference about whether counties even have FUHCs. Um, and if you want to understand how important they are, um, we are the primary care provider for at least 50,000 people in, in Lane County because our FQHCs are who carries out the Oregon Health Plan and Medicaid treatment um, for a lot of people. Uh, in addition to that, we have integrated mental health providers into our physical health teams, and we have our mental health department that is that is also formed under that federally qualified health clinic law. Well, unfortunately, um, the federal government is waffling on part of that law where one of the things that the federal government agreed to do when it let counties start setting up these clinics was they would cover us for malpractice and other legal claims against um, resulting from uh, the, you know, whatever medical procedures, et cetera, we were doing in these federally qualified health clinics because the federal government has a whole lot more resource um, and can basically self-insure itself. It can defend itself, you know, you know, you know, as much money as federal government spends on lawyers uh, and lawsuits, you know, in, in all its departments, it shouldn't be a big deal. Whereas an individual county, a single lawsuit can be massively expensive uh, and, and devastating to a budget. Um, so we took on the role of doing the operational work of, of health care 
based on the fact the federal government was basically going to take up our malpractice insurance for us and be that malpractice insurance. Doesn't make people that they couldn't get reimbursement for whatever damages, whatever, just that the check and who they had to litigate with is the federal government, not not the counties. Um, but recently, the federal government uh, tried to weasel out and, and, is, and we were still discussing with them whether or not that act covers mental health services, particularly somebody that was not a voluntary patient, but was actually um, sentenced to get treatment uh, by a municipal judge in a mental health department, which is what happened in this particular case they're waffling on. And in addition, just so the resolution asked to clarify that mental health services are one of the you know, specific services under the FQHCs that's covered by the Federal Tort Claim Act. Uh, in addition, um, even if it's a non-voluntary patient, you know, that, that's still a patient. Because, you know, the mental health side really has the big, some of the biggest risk. You know, because we, most of our medical practice um, is not surgery. We're providing just, you know, the the primary care uh, provisions and all that. We don't, you know, we don't do surgery, but the mental health part. So, you know, how often does a primary care doctor get sued for malpractice? Um, yeah, relative, but not big, not the big cases. Um, but where the big dollars arise out of really is third parties that get injured by a patient. And particularly that is most likely to happen in mental health. It could happen in physical health. You know, we could give the wrong blood pressure medication to somebody. They could black out behind the wheel and hit somebody. But it's more likely somebody that you're treating for mental health that might, you know, uh, refuse treatment, you know, decide they want to go off whatever drug they were prescribed, um, have a psychotic breakdown and injure somebody or maybe even kill somebody. And then you're in for the big bucks lawsuits. And that's kind of really what this resolution was really to clarify, because without knowing that that protection is there and, and solid, um, there's, there's going to be a lot of counties questioning whether they continue providing these services. It's a make or break question. So it was really important to be able to carry that through. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I went to this conference and why it was worth the county's money for my airfare and hotel to be there uh, to get that resolution approved and have the backing of all 303,142 um, counties, parishes, and boroughs that support that change in federal law, um, which you know kind of puts pressure on everybody else. And it, and it, it was pretty interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people um, have shown you know, other counties that aren't even involved in a lawsuit like we are were really concerned when they heard about what was going on and, and really want to make sure this is clarified. Because, uh, you know, mental health is so important. I mean, the president talked about mental health. Nobody wants us to, be, you know, be putting people that are met mentally ill in the jails and all that stuff. So we have to ramp up how much mental health provision counties do. And if we have to also buy and pay for liability insurance for that, we can't afford to do it. So that was a really important reason. Second reason, you know, particularly with being on the uh, uh, public safety committee, 
was also to work on, um, and there was a resolution put through on the Medicaid exclusion for jail inmates. And unfortunately, um, one of the things that's happened um, over time is Medicaid's been refusing to cover people that get booked into jail. Now, it'd be one thing if those people have been tried and convicted. It's another thing when they're just booked in and accused of a crime. So at that point, you haven't been found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. You still have all your rights under the Constitution and should have access to any service you know, that somebody outside the jail should have. But they've been pulling you know, Medicaid from jail inmates, which quite often you know, we're, we're the largest mental health provider in the county in our jail. Those folks are coming in mentally ill and on Medicaid. And usually, sometimes even might be getting treatment, uh, but they may have, you know, gotten a little off of it or something like that. Cutting off their their services as they come into jail, and and then having to restart those as we as we um, release them pre-trial or something, um, or if the charges are dropped or whatever, that interruption and restart causes all sorts of problems for folks that are under mental health treatment. Not to mention the fact that while that person's in jail and they're not under Medicaid, guess who pays for all their health? Lane County taxpayers. <laughs> so it was kind of an important thing to, to you know, work on that Medicaid exclusion um, uh, for jail inmates and try and get that fixed to where it only happens once you're actually convicted of a crime, you know, where, where at that point you do lose uh, rights uh, in this country to us, you know, because one of the things we we're allowed to do at that point is confine you to jail. <laughs> you lose your freedom of travel. Uh, there's all sorts of things that get happen when you get convicted of a crime. Um, but, you know, until you're actually convicted, you know, you should have access to services at, at just like anybody else does, because at that point, you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, and you should continue to maintain your rights. And if, you know, we're not having to pay for the medical costs for some of those folks in the jail, we can in turn take that money and put it into hiring more mental health staff. And maybe some of those people won't show up in the jail in the first place, or, um, you know, maybe have a few more jail beds open, paying for medical expenses. So it's a really big issue for the county. So I was happy to be there for that, too. Um, you know, and there are some other big issues that were talked about there. Of course, you know, I mentioned rural broadband. There is an app, and I think if you go to most app stores, you can find it called Test It, and it's all one word, T-E-S-T-I-T, -E um, that allows you to basically test your broad, your real broadband internet speed, not the advertised. And what it does is it tests it and reports anonymously the speeds where you are by location back to the National Association of Counties, and they're tracking this by county and area um, so they can give a full report to the uh, um, uh, FCC and everybody else that controls that broadband um, as they're, you know, a lot of the companies that claim they're providing rural broadband really aren't everything else and trying to get a real fix out there. 
um, on rural broadband. And, and the reporting they have so far, they've had over 100,000 tests across the country in 49 states. And um, it, you know, the, what they want for broadband services versus, you know, what they get in the rural counties and smaller population counties is only about 30% of people have access decent broadband, the minimums that they're talking about, which was, which I wouldn't be happy with personally. And um, once you get into major urban counties and cities, it's over 70%. So the urban rural divide in, um, in, in the, in the internet exists very much so. And that was a big topic of conversation. Um, of course, mental health, I talked about homelessness and housing was also a big issue that got talked about a lot. There's speakers on that. Um, but overall, it was, you know, a really good conference. And, you know, I'm there to try and help advance things that will advance Lane County, like that re resolution clarifying the, the, the tort um, coverage on our federally qualified health clinics pushing for that uh, removal of that Medicaid exclusion for folks that aren't convicted of crimes. Um, yeah, in fact, that one's actually been made into a House bill and a Senate bill in, in up there on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., with multiple um, sponsors signed on. So hopefully we might, you know, if we can get uh, past things like the uh, um, impeachment and a few other things going on, maybe we can actually get that one because it has bipartisan support um, through and that'll make a huge difference in county jails and, and our, the resources we'll have available. It will also make a huge difference to those inmates where they don't have to go through that, that interruption of services. Um, so really kind of important. Um, and so things like that are just important. Plus, I also get the opportunity, and I only got to talk to one of our uh, congressional representatives this time, and that was Representative Peter DeFazio uh, in person. Um, but those meetings are always usually quick because they have such limited time for those. But we did um, meet with him, and he, of course, you know, he's, you know, Mr. Infrastructure himself talked about it. Um, just about, you know, the, the big thing holding it up is everybody wants the bill on both sides of the aisle, but they can't agree on how to pay for it, how big it should be, how, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, but hopefully something will move eventually. And, uh, you know, he also brought up rural broadband as, as, you know, that was identified and defined as infrastructure, you know, in, in, the, in the federal government uh, sense of things. Uh, it's not just highways, um, you know, railroads, ports. It's also um, water systems and sewer systems and broadband, rural broadband in particular. So it's good to hear him talk about that. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, we we got talked to him a little bit about, um, you know, some of the the um, just. Some of the commissioners there asked about some particular things that were important to them. Uh, David Yamamoto with uh, uh, Tillamook County Commissioner, uh, I think he's the chair of their board, talked about the uh, biological opinion on floodplains from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife folks that's going to affect FEMA floodplain um, regulation. Uh, we got a pause. We're about a year and a half into a three-year pause, but there's still concern that FEMA 
it didn't quite get the message that they need to go back away from um, how they were going to deal with that. Um, I got to talk a little bit about the FQHC thing, uh, and they seem to be on that. They think that fix can be made as part of a continuing resolution. Uh, it's you know kind of attached to that keep the government running bill, and uh, uh, Commissioner Chair Buck, I should say, was was also in the meeting and talked about the. Uh, Leebird fish hatchery and getting that you know that uh, transferred and funded and, and and making sure that continues uh, that's really important for you know the fishing guide industry and tourism and uh, on the uh, Mackenzie River and also the the long term viability of the dam system um, and then you know, I I got to talk to him a little bit about you know in the transportation bill if they, if they do manage to do congressionally directed funding, which, you know, is the, the new term for uh, earmark, <laughs> how I'd like to have one for the Beltline road improvements so we can finally fix Beltline over the Willamette River, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, so that it was, it was a good meeting with uh, Congressman DeFazio, um, you know, him and I, even though we're on opposite sides of the aisle agree a lot on some things because you know my civil engineering background and his background having been on the infrastructure um, transportation side of things for so long we both see the need to invest in our infrastructure and how we've underinvested in it in america over the years to where we're getting this deferred maintenance bill built up that you know we're going to have a hard time uh, getting past whereas you know countries that came into the first world more recently from the third world, all their infrastructure is relatively new. And they're not going to see that bill for a while. And uh, China and some of those countries like that, you know, they've been just building infrastructure like crazy and it's all new and they're not having to live with that. Um, you know, they've got another 50 to 75 to 100 years before they're going to start seeing the problems we're seeing, um, which is going to make them have a little bit of an advantage economically. So we need to fix that. Um, so that kind of covers a lot of stuff from Washington, D.C. And I didn't even pause to give you guys our phone number, which is oh so important here on the Bose Nose Show, because we like folks to call in and control the topic. In fact, even when I did a shortened show from Milford, Delaware last week, we had a call in from here in Oregon to talk about something a little bit different. But our number is 646-721-9887. And just press one so we know you want to get in and talk on the show. That's 646-721-9887. And press one so we get that little question mark. And Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows you want to get in on the show. So uh, anytime anyone wants to call in the Bose Nose Show, we like callers. Because we want to talk about what you're interested in, not so much what Jay is blathering on about. Yeah, I got a question. Sure, Robin. Did you make any uh, new personal friends at the airport? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, but yeah, I, it was kind of funny because, um, you know, as much as I was hearing about so, some of the pseudo panic and all that, because I I, I, you know, I I checked the register guard every day online and I was getting a lot of um, news feed from the Seattle area and all that um, on that, that one nursing home. Um, I only saw one couple at Baltimore, Washington International Airport um, and Denver Airport, uh, you know, big airports. 
that had face masks on and both couples were uh, obviously oriental uh, so they may have either come from china or you know might be traveling too or just that's sort of it's interesting even when there isn't a virus outbreak in in china people wear face masks on the street also in japan and and in korea for some reason it's gotten to be um almost just a, a daily thing for a lot of those people i don't know if it's the pollution or the threat of, of dis communicable diseases but it's a much more accepted thing in their culture to walk around um, the streets with a face mask on or go fly an airplane <laughs> but no one else in the in the entire airport that i see had a face face mask on so that that was that was it and and People were more than happy to engage in conversation and all that, uh, uh, whether it was on the airplane or, um, you know, in, in the terminal. So uh, I was not, I did not see anyone doing anything much different um, other than I did notice that everyone washed their hands in the restroom. <laughs> did not see anyone, at least in the men's rooms I was in, skipping, skipping the, the hand washing routine. So that word has gotten out there. It is the single best defense you can you can do besides trying to learn not to touch your face. Keep the hands away from the face. Don't rub your eyes. Don't rub your nose. You know all those things your mom taught you. Um, don't be like Mini Mike and lick your fingers after you've had a piece of pizza. Ah uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, which you know that you, you just gotta. I, I had to die laughing. Um, I went back to my hotel room for a brief moment, uh, you know, somewhere about three o'clock Eastern time. And I forgot it was CPAC weekend. And I flipped on the television and um, there's President Trump giving a speech. And I caught it right before he started into talking about the Democrat candidates and, and the uh, Democrat debate. And I thought I was going to split a gut. Um, I, if you ever get a chance, Google, um, you know, Trump CPAC mini mic, and you'll find that clip where he, he talks about him. The guy is funny enough to be on Saturday Night Live, I swear. Um, but yeah, he he totally laid laid into uh, some of the, the Democrat candidates and and, and particularly uh, hit mini mini mic um, hard. <laughs> And I know people are probably going to complain because I'm making fun of somebody's stature, and I probably shouldn't do that using that term. I'm copying what President Trump says. Um, so there's that. <laughs> I'll admit my shortcomings. <laughs> I can't stop. <laughs> oh, I'm going down a bad path. Speaking of short, let's talk about the short session or lack thereof, <laughs> you know, and I was also kind of keeping track of that from the East Coast very closely, uh, obviously having written my own personal resolution against the uh, cap and trade bill, I was very happy to support the Republican walkout. Yes, they are doing their jobs by walking out. Everyone that accused them of not doing their jobs doesn't understand our constitution or parliamentary procedures. It's one of the tools available to legislators and a, and a body that operates under um, procedure. 
You can deny a quorum. It's a fairly standard act, you know, when people are going off the rails. I remember in junior high school preparing to organize a denial of quorum for our student council because some idiots were going to bring up some resolution that they thought we should bomb the White House. Now, mind you, this was back when Nixon was in the White House and, and the Vietnam War was going on. And I lived in a very liberal area of Montgomery County, Maryland at the time. And uh, um, I was quietly organizing the background enough, uh, enough students to walk out and deny a quorum so that they wouldn't do something that stupid <laughs> and, and, and make our school a laughing stock. Uh, and a headline. So as far back as junior high school, I understood um, that denial of quorum is a legitimate parliamentary maneuver to stop something really bad when you don't have enough votes to stop it by a, a simple majority. You know, it's something you don't use all the time. Um, but in, in serious cases. And the thing that really bothers me the most about this is short sessions weren't meant to pass these kind of bills. And in addition, it was the Democrat majority, supermajority that chose to bring the, that cap and trade forward ahead of housing bills, ahead of emergency relief for the floods in Hermiston, ahead of um, a, a, a additional funding for uh, parole and probation and post-prison um, uh, supervision and aid uh, reintegration of, of folks coming out of prison funding that, that was supposed to come out, ahead of a bunch of mental health funding that was supposed to help folks uh, that were mentally ill and involved in the criminal justice system, ahead of all those needed um, budget bills, which that's what the short session was originally sold to the citizens of Oregon was, you know, we're constantly have to come back in special session to fix budget items because if, if we either overshoot or undershoot our estimates of revenue, two years is too long to try and adjust the budget. We need at least one short session in the middle of the biennium to readjust based on revenue um, projections or actual revenues. And of course, with the booming economy, we've had continually increasing revenue projections. So they've got extra money to spend. And it would have been really easy to put those money bills up front, get done with them, then deal with cap and trade. And then if you force a, a quorum denial, you're, you're not holding up, you know, needed housing and you're not holding up needed mental health services, you're not holding up critical funding to our parole and probation system. You know, you're not holding up emergency relief to the Hermiston area for the flooding they, they saw. You know, that, that's just, you know, amazes me that that was their choice. And then even after the Republicans offered to come back for a one-day session to just deal with the budget stuff, the Democrats said, nope, not good enough. We're going to shut the session down and run away. 
Now, who's not doing their job? The Republicans who utilized a perfectly legitimate form of procedure or the Democrats that are choosing not to come back, just deal with monetary stuff, and then end the session and, and possibly deal with another walkout. But no, they, 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 they're insistent. They won't, they won't change the order of things or nothing. So, you know, we're not going to, they're going to have to come back with, with what they call the e-board and maybe make some of the fixes, but the e-board has limited ability to do that. And uh, I just, uh, it just amazes me, you know, that they, they, they made that choice. And, and uh, you know, I, I frankly, um, I'm happy in some ways because there were also some other bad bills I really did not want to see get anywhere. And that was some of these gun bills that were, were floating around. Um, and there were a few tax bills I didn't like too well either. Um, there was a, a, a bill that would have uh, put something to the voters to lift the uh, moratorium on, on increasing transfer taxes on sale of houses, which increases the cost of housing, but they were going to take that and use it for housing, which, you know, I, that always amazes me when government taxes something to make it more expensive to try and provide more of it, you know, that circular taxation routine. But so there are some other bad bills that I'm kind of glad are dying with the short session, but the short session is dead. Um, and I want to just thank all the Republicans that stood up and walked out and, and held their ground um, because it was so important. We have yet to see the consequences of the new corporate activities tax on Oregon's economy. I mean, we are seeing layoff notice after layoff notice come to our board now um, of companies that are shutting down or limiting operations in Oregon, companies that have operations in other states, Phillips Electric, that uh, liner board mill that that Chilean company closed. You know, I just saw an, an additional layoff from the Symantec folks. I think they're finally just basically closed, completely closing up shop. Haven't really, you know, but you know, it's just you know, we're you know we're not seeing what is actually going to happen when we start you know putting that corporate activities tax, which builds on itself in the supply chain. And, uh, you know, really, that's a, a, a bad thing overall, that, that we're going to have that corporate activities tax. We've got to wait and see what happens with that before we start monkeying around with some kind of carbon tax scheme, an unneeded carbon tax at that, um, that will, you know, just really hurt Oregon's economy, make energy in all forms cost more, which means all consumer goods take energy either to move around, make, or produce. Um, everything gets more expensive for everybody. We're already one of the most expensive states to live in in the U.S. We're already one of the states that has the highest withholding taxes in the U.S. So um, we, we, we need to stay away from new taxes. You know, if they if they moved ahead with that one, I think we'd have to have another tea party. With lemon. Yep, taxed enough already. So, that's kind of my 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 thoughts somewhat on the short session. Uh, 
few minutes left here, might talk a little bit about the coronavirus. But, you know, I kind of don't understand all the excitement. You know, I, I you know, I don't drink Corona beer. Um, so I'm really not worried. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> it, have, it, you, it, have you heard about the toilet paper crisis? Yeah, yeah. It seems like everyone's going out and buying toilet paper because of the coronavirus. That one I don't get. And I heard about, I started hearing about this this weekend that these, you know, warehouse stores, particularly out here in Northwest where the first cases were being um, heard of, were selling out of toilet paper and canned goods and stuff as people were preparing to stay home. And I'm thinking, okay, you're worried about a virus, but you went to a warehouse store when it was going to be crowded with everybody else panicking and got yourself exposed to how many people you don't know? <laughs> or Amazon. Yeah, just just didn't make sense. Yeah, Amazon would be one way to, to try and get stuff. Yeah, I yeah, thought... Also got a lot of people that uh, are touching the stuff too from Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, you know, that's a little bit... You know, by the time it goes, the last person to touch whatever you get from Amazon is either the mail person or the or the the UPS guy. And the virus has a certain life. They don't think it has much more than a six to twelve hour lifespan on very depending on the surface. So, um, you know, leave, let let the stuff sit on your door step. Maybe it won't get stolen. <laughs> and then either that or you know, wipe it off with the uh, the, the the handy wipes before you pick up the package you know uh so but it you know it, it's kind of surprising i'm watching you know the stock market's going down and what one of the things i couldn't believe was costco's stock went down so are you kidding me and, it, and then it, re, it bounced back pretty pretty far but i'm thinking if i'm if i had money and was able to buy stock right now in the stock market i'd be buying um you know, Amazon, because of Amazon Prime and, and, and all their delivery services, plus their video streaming services. People that are staying home are going to have to do something. So Netflix, you know, Hulu and all those video streaming services, you might want to be investing in some of those. Uh, it might be a good idea to, you know, invest in Amazon and, and uh, um, what's that, um, grocery, you know, any of the grocery stores that deliver on the Internet, like Walmart. Or you know that will deliver to your door uh, might be a good idea to enter you know maybe a Pizza Hut or you know whatever food deliver anything that gets delivered to the door <laughs> or in the home for entertainment might be a, a sound investment right now um, as people are sort of kind of panicking. Um, I you know, think you nail on the head for all those automated home delivery systems like Amazon drones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it'll be interesting. So, um, but it, it, it's a serious thing. Um, and it's, but I, I went back and looked at the history of a couple other coronavirus outbreaks, uh, mainly the, the SARS, that um, sudden something or other respiratory syndrome. Um, I can't remember what the A stands for. And MERS, which was that um, uh, Mediterranean uh Egyptian or something. I forget what that one stood for, respiratory syndrome or something, yeah. Um, and that, those two were coronaviruses that, you know, started, you know, one started in, in the Mideast. It was Mideast, sorry, not Mediterranean, Mideast. Um, um, 
and respiratory syndrome, and then there was the, the sudden one, which was actually another China start. But looking at the epidemiological curves for those and the number of cases, yeah, they have a fast ramp up and, and, and got up there and stayed up for a while, but they drop off in six months to almost nothing. So both of those outbreaks weren't something that was around forever and, and had a limited duration in the world. And I don't think anyone now talks about the, um, the SARS um, recession or the MERS recession, you know? So COVID-19 probably is not going to um, be quite as impactful unless we make it that way by how we react to it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this moves on. It was kind of even interesting on Capitol Hill, um, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, was whether people were still shaking hands. Because uh, <laughs> it's gotten political already. Blame, you know, blame game's already happening, and we, we're barely even into the start of uh, the epidemiology of this. Um, you know, two and a half billion wasn't enough. It's got to be eight. Point three billion. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of happy about it in some ways because I'm cer certain that that Lane County will receive some of that funding. Um, and our public health department is, you know, does amazing work with minimal resources because we, we're not getting the timber money we used to get that used to pay for a lot of our operational funding, you know, which was something else I also you know, got to talk about back there at NACO quite a bit was federal timber policy uh, and with some of the folks back there because uh, I attended the uh, the Rural um, Action Caucus of the, which is the small counties, which Lane County really isn't one of, but I attended their caucus anyway because that's where I heard from the Department of Air Interior, um, the uh, U.S. Forest Service um, you know, uh, USDA Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service uh, folks and, and a few others um, uh, uh, about various issues that impact rural counties as outside of Eugene, uh, Springfield, Lane County is very rural. Um, so and impacted by a lot of those federal land management decisions. 55% of Lane County is owned by the federal government. So it is important. Um, but I see we're just about out of time here on the Bo's Nose Show, and I will hope that everybody stays safe uh, and from the coronavirus, and uh, we will, you know, now we can mark ourselves safe from the short session on Facebook, and uh, we'll be back next week at our regular time here on the Bo's Nose Show, which is Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, we'll be back again live from beautiful downtown Elmira. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.